Hello, this is Daryl Castle with today's Castle Report. Today is Friday, May 17th, 2019. More importantly, we are two weeks roughly from Memorial Day, so on this report, I will begin the first of a two-part report as a lead-in to Memorial Day coming up. On Monday, May 27th, this two-part series will concentrate on the stories of those people who fought World War II, number one, because they deserve it, number two, because history is important and the stories of what those men did, unfortunately, often die with them. It's a different world now than the world of the World War II veteran. It was simpler then because we knew who we were. We knew that we had something worth killing for and worth dying for. In mythology, the hero's journey involves the tales of a hero who goes on an adventure. In a decisive crisis, he wins a victory and comes home changed by that victory. That is certainly the tale of the men we are going to talk about today, except that many of them missed out on the coming home part of that adventure. In the early days of the war, the U.S. Navy almost ceased to exist in the Pacific due to the Japanese attack on the naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Fortunately, the only three aircraft carriers in the Pacific were at sea that day and thereby survived the attack. American industry had to be rebuilt, retooled almost overnight to completely rebuild the Navy to fight a world war. President Roosevelt wanted some way to lift the morale of the American people who were enduring the news of one Japanese victory after another, culminating in the surrender of the Philippines along with 70,000 Filipino and American troops. The president told his military commanders he wanted to strike at the mainland of Japan itself, but none of them thought it could be done because no land-based bombers had the range to reach Japan. Well, then, the president said, what about a carrier-based attack? No, they said, because Japanese anti-ship and anti-air defenses would never allow a carrier to approach close enough to launch an attack against Japan itself. The president told them, find me someone who believes it can be done and who is willing to do it. That man turned out to be Lieutenant Colonel James Jimmy Doolittle, an officer who had been in the Army Air Corps, as it was known then. Since 1917, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle was an accomplished flyer, having tested many types of aircraft, and he held the air cross-country speed record. As well, he was one of the pioneers in the early days of military aviation, an icon, if you will. In addition, he was an intelligent man, educated with a Ph.D. in aeronautics, from MIT, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle thought it could be done, and he set about the task of building a team of 80 men to do it. He asked for volunteers, told them it was an extremely dangerous mission. Soon, he had more than enough to select from. He needed 16 crews of five men to a crew, or 80 men. They were tasked with something never before attempted, launching a twin-engine land-based bomber, the B-25 from the deck of a carrier at sea, bombing the Japanese capital, flying on to China, knowing they could not make China and they could not return to the carrier. The purpose of this report is not to talk about the airplanes or the ships or their ordnance, but to tell the stories of the men who flew them, who served them. So let's look 
What happened to those 80 men, the aircraft carrier USS Hornet, was selected for the mission. 16 B-25s were loaded aboard and chained down on its deck. The ship and its battle group set sail for the coast of Japan, intending to launch the raid 400 miles from the coast. That would leave them just enough fuel to complete their bomb runs and still make the coast of China, where the Chinese would hopefully help them. However, when they were 600 miles from Japan, the task force encountered a Japanese fishing vessel, and the captain of the Hornet knew they had been discovered, so he asked Colonel Doolittle, what do you want to do? Colonel Doolittle said, let's go. Let's launch immediately. So they did. They launched beyond the range of their fuel limits, knowing they couldn't make it all the way. Colonel Doolittle was pilot of the number one ship. His co-pilot was Lieutenant Richard Cole, who was the last survivor of the Raiders. Lieutenant Cole died April 3rd of this year at the age of 103. Since the raid was launched on April 18, 1942, he was 26 years old on that day. It also means that this past April 18th was the 77th anniversary of the raid. Colonel Doolittle's bomber was the first one over Tokyo, dropping its bombs on a factory. At 12.30 p.m. Tokyo time, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle ordered his crew to bail out when they reached the coast of China. At 9.30 p.m. that night, the 16th crew was 59 minutes behind Colonel Doolittle's number one plane, which means they had to face a lot of Japanese anti-air system because it was on full alert. So 80 men took part with five men in each of 16 bombers. Two men from crew number six drowned in a crash landing in the water off the Chinese coast. The other three men of that crew, plus all five of another crew, were taken prisoner by the Japanese. Of those, three were executed by firing squad. One died of malnutrition and disease in prison. Four survived 40 months in prison, most of that in solitary confinement. One crew landed in Russia and was interned as prisoners for a year because Russia was not yet at war with Japan. Of those who made it to China and survived, 13 died in other theaters of war. Four raiders were shot down over Germany and became prisoners of the Germans. The crew of number seven crashed into the sea near China. All five men were seriously wounded. The pilot, Lieutenant Ted Lawson, had to have his leg amputated by a survivor. From another crew, who was the only doctor on the raid, Lieutenant Lawson returned home to his wife and later wrote the book 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, which was made into a movie starring Van Johnson. The doctor, Thomas White, flew as a gunner on an uh, airplane to take part in the raid. He flew as a gunner because he wanted to go on this raid. He received the Silver Star for saving Lieutenant Lawson's life. Lieutenant C.L. McClure, the navigator of Ted Lawson's number seven crew, was wounded so badly that he was not released from the hospital for one year until 1943. The Chinese people knew that if they helped these Americans, the repercussions would be severe. But they did it anyway, saving the lives of many men when the Japanese discovered the help given to the raiders, they destroyed the villages of all the Chinese who helped them. Then they massacred the Chinese people. An estimated 250,000 of them were killed. That's one reason 
I always hold out hope for U.S.-Chinese relations, hope that we can resolve our differences with China. Once we stood together, all 80 men received the Distinguished Flying Cross, Colonel Doolittle, received the Medal of Honor. Five Raiders, including Colonel Doolittle, went on to become generals. Colonel Doolittle was promoted to Brigadier General and later became Commanding General of the 12th Air Force in North Africa, and then Commanding General of the 8th Air Force in its bombing campaign against Germany. He ended the war as a three-star general and left active service. On May 10th, 1946, finally retiring in 1959, he was recalled during Korea to help with space and missile technology, and on April 4, 1985, the U.S. Congress promoted him to full four-star general rank while he was the Air Force, in the Air Force Reserve, the first reserve officer to ever attain that rank. General Doolittle died at his home in Pebble Beach, California, September 9, 1992, at the age of 96. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Thus, completing his journey. It was quite a life, wasn't it? A monumental adventure, a hero's tale, that's for sure. The Raiders made a point of holding a reunion each year. As they got older, they bought a bottle of cognac, and each year the survivors would drink a toast with the idea being that the last man would finish it. When they got down to three men, they quit having the reunion because it was just too sad. In the last 15 years or so, the survivors became celebrities, traveling to various military parades and air shows and giving speeches. People were fascinated in the last few years by them because you just don't see people like that anymore. People wanted to meet them, to associate with them, to intermingle with them. I had a chance to hear them speak once at an air show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, back in the 1990s. Two months, the months following the attack on Pearl Harbor were the darkest of the war for America. But the raid on Tokyo provided a morale boost, cheering the military and the civilians alike. The raid meant so much more than that, however, because its real effects are still being felt today. It demonstrated to the Japanese high command that their home could be attacked too. It ended the myth of invincibility of the Japanese army and the inevitability of its conquest. The Japanese were forced to shift the allocation of vital resources to the protection of their homeland. Admiral Yamamoto, commander of the Japanese Navy, believed that the American Navy had to be drawn into a single great battle and destroyed before American industry could ramp up to full speed, the raid caused the Japanese high command to agree to his desire for a fleet engagement near the mid-Pacific island of Midway. In that battle, the Japanese lost four frontline carriers and with them the war. Therefore, the world would be entirely different today if those 80 men had not been willing to go on their hero's journey. The USS Hornet was a marked ship after launching the Raiders, and the Japanese finally sunk it October 26, 1942, just six months later at the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands. American industry did crank up during 1942, 
that small navy with three battered carriers <clears throat> grew to 50, 50 carriers within a year. It was 26 months, though, 26 months before American bombers returned to Japan, but returned they did. As fleets of B-29 super fortresses rained destruction on Japan throughout 1945, do we still produce men like these? I don't know for sure. If we do, they're scattered in different deployments all over the world. Most of us today are not worthy of them. Next, next week, God willing, we'll continue our hero's journey with part two. Until then, folks, this is Daryl Castle. Thanks for listening.